HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meet and Three is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit and hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Eat Your Words. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And today happens to be Mother's Day. And uh, I'm joined by um, an amazing guest who is not a mother. (laughs) But you could say that he is a a founding figure of sorts of the modern single-subject culinary history book. So I'm talking classics like salt, cod, salt, a world history. There's um, cod, and I've got some other paperbacks here hanging around um, of his previous work, um, like The Big Oyster, a, mollus- a Molluscular History of New York. His latest book, though, is very fitting for Mother's Day because it is about milk. <laughs> it is called Milk, a 10,000-year hun- food fracas. And um, I'm really, really pleased to be joined by Mark Kurlansky. Hey. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so... Since you've written 31 books at this mm. point, so this is the Milk is Your 31st, how do you go about deciding which topic or which food to devote hundreds of pages to? 
Well, it's sort of a haphazard process mm -hmm. and uh, not always the same. And I'm not necessarily looking for uh, foods either. And yeah. Actually, of those 31, I don't know, maybe a third of them are food or something. But uh, right. that still ends up <laughs> being a lot of books. Um, well, the but, food ones are well imitated, I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this particular book uh, came about uh, because a very nice magazine called Modern Farmer mm -hmm. called me up out of the blue and asked me if I would write an article about milk. And to be honest, I hadn't really thought much about uh, milk up to that point. Okay. And uh, I said, okay, so um, what, what about milk? And they said, well... You know, I've heard that when the calves are taken away from the cows, the cows cry. <laughs> and so I went around uh, to a bunch of farms and asked farmers about that. And uh, some of them said they do, some said they, they don't. A lot of them said some do and others don't. I, I love the one who said, you know, there's all kinds of mothers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it didn't seem to be working for me as a story, but... In the process, I picked up on something else that I got very interested in, and that is that um, there is just a, a huge list of controversies around milk, and dairy farmers um, struggle to make a living. The price of milk is, is too low. The profit margin is too low, and all of these controversies to the farmer represent opportunities. You know, if, uh, if you can be organic, gmo uh, free, animal-friendly, any of these things are a reason to make your milk price higher. But they invariably also make it more expensive to produce milk. So they're all trying to figure out a formula that works. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about that, and then I was realizing that there's nothing new about this, that <laughs> they've been arguing about milk and various aspects of milk for 10,000 years. So right. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a 10,000-year food fracas. And um, throughout this book, which is, you know, it's a wonderful history of so many different facets of milk production and the products that milk uh, makes from ice cream and cheese to sweetened condensed milk. But, um, you know, throughout it, we get a sense of this ongoing debate. Um, we seem to be eternally confused about this very elemental ingredient. Well, you know, if you, if you think about it, uh, I mean, milk is a, uh, a bodily fluid <laughs> that uh, humans produce to feed their babies. And then at some point, we don't exactly know when. I would have loved to have been there. So, <laughs> you know, for some reason... Uh, mother's milk wasn't available. The mother had died or she just wasn't producing enough or something. And somebody said, oh, look at that goat. That pr they produce milk too. Why don't we mm -hmm. use that? Right. <laughs> that was an amazing moment. Um, and that's when controversies began. Okay. You know, yeah. start, starting with, uh, um, is human milk better than animal milk? Is uh, uh, What kind of animal milk should you use? Um, uh, should we even be drinking milk? Mm, from another uh, animal, yeah. Well, well, or drinking milk at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we weren't designed to drink milk past the age of two. Mm -hmm. this, this whole thing about lactose intolerance, we're supposed to be lactose intolerant. Nowadays, 
only about 60% of the world's population is lactose intolerant. It's still the majority. Um, there is an enzyme called lactase that is produced that gives us the ability to digest lactose, which is a sugar that's in milk. Mm-hmm. And uh, for humans at about the age of two, it shuts off. Um, it shuts off at, at some young age for all mammals. Uh, that's what's supposed to happen, and it's a, a, a genetic mutation that has allowed some of us to keep producing lactase and, and, and keep drinking milk. So um, the, the argument that, you know, milk is nature's goodness and we're supposed to be drinking it because it's healthy is a little shaky. I mean, mm-hmm. you can certainly argue it. Yeah, so we the, the aberrant condition is being able to digest milk past two. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, fascinating. Growing up in America, you know, in the last century or so, we were drilled into... Uh, this idea of milk does a body good, it's right. a necessity. Right, but, you know, I mean, it's largely a European thing. It's Europeans that got the aberration or, you know, people of uh, European origin. Um, very few uh, people of African origin, including Africans, African Americans, um, uh, can drink milk. Uh, the Maasai are about the only group in, in Africa that drinks that milk. Drink milk. And, and, they're, and they're, mm-hmm. they're cattle herders and milk producers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, very few Native Americans can drink milk. Um, there was no milking of animals anywhere in the Americas before Europeans arrived. Which, which is interesting Still. because, you know, it shows that it's not a climactic thing because... You know, mm-hmm. in, in, in all of the Americas, there's about every climate imaginable. Right. But uh, none of them are milk drinkers. None of them are. Um, um, but in, um, in Asia and uh, in the northern climates, like the Mongolians, they were a milk drinking. Uh, well, the Mon- Mongolians yeah. were milk mm-hmm. drinkers. The Chinese weren't. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an interesting thing because it was always assumed that the Chinese were lactose intolerant because mm-hmm. uh, they didn't drink milk except for it was kind of a luxury thing. You know, in uh, among uh, dynasties, rulers drank mm-hmm. milk, mm-hmm. and uh, um, nowadays they drink. In fact, forty percent of Chinese drink milk today, which is just about the you know the the world norm. Uh, what happened was Chinese got into being Western, uh-huh. <laughs> and so they wanted yep. to do everything it's Western. Fashion. But what's interesting is that once they decided they wanted to drink milk, they discovered that they weren't lactose intolerant. So it was, it was yeah. cultural, not biological. Right, right. And so much of this is, um, the, you know, the food, differing food philosophies of the times and food fashions. Um, you write that back in the Roman Empire, they regarded um, the buttery barbarians from the north as, um, you know, stinky. They smelled <clears throat> like the butter made them stink. No, that's what the Japanese. That's what the Japanese thought of thought okay. of us. Right. The Romans, the Romans thought that northern people were barbarians and backwards because they drank milk. Mm-hmm. But that's because in Rome, you know, going way way back to ancient times, people, although they didn't understand why, they understood that milk um, would make you sick if mm-hmm. it wasn't really really fresh. Okay. Um, so. Uh, the result of that was that in Rome, uh, really only farmers drank fresh milk. Right. 
You can't transport it too far. Right. Milk was used to make uh, cheese and yogurt and things, but drinking fresh milk was just something that was done on the farm. So like most things that are just done on the farm, it was considered like a backwards. Peasant, and, yeah. Yeah, not a, uh, uh, an elegant thing to do. So when the Romans started conquering Europe and finding in Northern Europe all these people drinking milk, they said, oh, what barbarians, they drink milk. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's gone through so many different reputations um, that, you know, lead us to today. Yeah, and back and forth. It keeps, you know, the, the whole issue of um, uh, breastfeeding goes back yes. and forth. I was going to say, so um, today, you know, there's still debate over whether breastfeeding is best. Um, and throughout history, you've, um, you know, you've written about how uh, nursing and wet nursing was very common amongst the the upper classes. Yeah, because there women. was this belief that uh, human milk was best, mm-hmm. so that if the if the mother wasn't going to provide the milk, uh, you should get it from another woman and not from a cow or a goat. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that was a very that was a very common thing. Uh, and a wet nurse was. Uh, uh, like a domestic, but somewhat better treated and better paid. It was basically a pretty good job. Right. Um, and there was all kinds of concerns about wet nurses because it was believed that uh, you could impact on the personality of your baby through the milk. the milk. So if you had a wet nurse who had a uh, bad temper, you would get a hot-tempered kid. Or <laughs> uh, and th- and then it you know came down to all these things like the Greeks used to write about how your wet nurse really should be a Greek. Uh-huh. You know, and right. uh, there were people who said they should be blonde, and people who said I, they should be brunette, and everybody agreed they shouldn't be redhead. Yes. So this study in Berlin in 1838 it concluded that that milk from brunettes, blondes, and redheads, uh, amongst them, redhead milk was the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> well, there's always been this thing about how redheaded women, you mm. know. Okay. You, you could. You can't trust those. It, well, <laughs> it, it could be, you know, a good thing or a bad thing, uh-huh. depending on your point of view. But redheaded women were, uh, you know, problematic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and the brunettes were the most sort of stable, calm. Maybe, well, in some cultures, they, they 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 preferred blonde, uh, blonde wet nurses. But those are probably very blonde cultures. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's true. Blonde people like blonde people. You <laughs> know. <laughs> that makes sense. I wonder what happened to wet nursing these days. You don't see that too much. Uh, no, no. Um, no. Uh, what's happened in America is um, breast pumps have gotten very good, mm. and they got covered on Obamacare. Mm. Um, and there's a huge use, to, use of breast pumps, so that today uh, there are far more uh, women feeding their babies than their ever have been in history mm-hmm. and it's also uh, kind of a social reversal because it tended to be poor people that did it because you know it was the yeah. cheapest way of getting milk mm-hmm. um, and today in America it, it's more upper class women who are who are doing it but it's a different kind of thing because you know it was always argued that you know one of the great advantages of breastfeeding was that the mother bonded mm. with, with the baby. Right. But what happens is, uh, if you have the pumps is that you produce this milk and you put it in bottles in the refrigerator and you go off to work and the caregiver bottle feeds the baby. So there's no, there's no bonding there. 
But mm. on the other hand, it means that people with demanding jobs can uh, breastfeed. Well, it's not really breastfeed, but they can right. provide milk for and their... Then, and then endlessly feel guilty. <laughs> yes, <laughs> either yeah. way, either okay. way. <laughs> <laughs> so many debates. Um, we just scratched the surface, but we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude and be right back chatting more. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and Chef de Cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. All right, we're back chatting more with Mark Kurlansky, the author of 31 novels, and his latest one is Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas. So uh, we were just talking about some of, the, some of those fracas, but let's, I guess, jump a little bit ahead in time to... Um, I, I love this passage that you write about, um, about how when you were growing up... Um, there was milk bottles that were delivered to your home, and they were so good because you could shake them up, and then that cream line at the top. It wasn't homogenized, and right. of course, nobody called it cream line then. It's just what milk was like, yeah. you know. And, a- and you just uh, you had the cream on the top, and you just shook the bottle and you poured it out, and, and it was great. I was one of four kids, and we all, you know, loved drinking a glass of milk in the morning, and then. One day the milk wasn't any good anymore. <laughs> you know? Hey, mom, what's happened to the milk? <laughs> and uh, uh, homogenization had taken over. You mm-hmm. know, they uh, for industrial convenience they broke down the the, the cream so that it no longer separated, um, and it just uh, I think wasn't as good. I mm. mean, I hardly ever drink milk nowadays, but every once in a while, you know, I see one of those pricey bottles of uh, cream-lined milk, I'll go for it. Right, right. So they were going for scale, I guess, over taste. Yeah. Story of many industrialized foods. Right. But they had, it sounds like a pretty good reason. Um, You write about, and I didn't realize this, uh, how dangerous milk was um, before these industrialized practices. um, There was... A story about um, President Zachary Taylor, who drank a cold glass of milk in July, I believe on Fourth of July, and then died soon after, after inaugurating Washington Monument. Yeah, <laughs> he drank <laughs> a nice cool glass of milk, and then probably died because of it. Yeah, this was a general who had lived through all kinds of battles. And what things. a silly way and, to die! Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the the in in New York City. Uh, in the middle of the 19th century, about 50% of the deaths were children under five. Hmm. Uh, And it was from milk. Um, uh, Milk was absolutely uh, deadly, especially in cities, because they didn't have great hygiene in the the dairies. 
But, you know, it was always true that uh, milk had to be really fresh or bad things would happen. Uh, But as it became more urbanized, and the other thing that happened is that there uh, there was a decline in breastfeeding and a decline in wet nurses and Mm. much more what they used to call artificial feeding, which is Mm. using animal milk for children. Okay. Um, And they were dying from it. And uh, this was around the time of uh, Pasteur. Mm-hmm. Um, there was always a mystery to me why, you know, Pasteur was, was French. Mm-hmm. And why is it that the French have never been as in love with pasteurization as the British and the Americans have? And then I realized that Pasteur wasn't trying to pasteurize milk. He was interested in this discovery of microbes and how they affected fermentation and other processes. And uh, he was working mainly with wine, which seems appropriately French. for a Frenchman, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But they started using it for milk. And then came a huge argument that has never really been resolved. Um, Between the, the people who said, you know, let's pasteurize all the milk and stop killing our children... Uh, good argument, uh-huh. <laughs> and and the people who said that pasteurized milk isn't as good uh, because in the process of killing uh, the bad microbes, they also kill the good ones. Uh, and what we should do is just do a better job of uh, monitoring uh, raw milk. Um, and this was a huge fight, and eventually pasteurization won out because... Um, it was just easier for public health, you know. You, you insist everybody has the equipment and that they use it and they use it right, and that's it. It's a lot easier than monitoring uh, uh, raw milk. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and that was just really sort of the first phase in the industrialization of milk. Right. What really got milk industrialized is that they finally developed milking machines really late, mm-hmm. late in the 19th century. You know, in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, they were coming up with machines for everything. But they didn't really have machines for milking. It was mm-hmm. complicated for a lot of reasons. Cows are complicated animals. Yeah. <laughs> they, they aren't all the same. Right. Um, but once they finally got milking machines working, that meant that a dairy was not limited to how many cows you could milk. You know, you just send them through these machines. Yep. Uh, and that opened the possibility of producing much more milk and having much bigger farms. And, in fact, you know, one of the odd things about milk history is it's never been market-driven. Yes. So every, everybody tries that is to, odd. Yeah, everybody tries to produce as much milk as they possibly can. So it's not driven by demand for that right. milk. Right, It's just so So once they, once they had milking machines and they could really produce a yeah. lot of milk, they had to come up with things to use it for. And that's when they started industrializing cheese, mm-hmm. which created this, this interesting conflict because cheese had always been made by women, and it was generally believed that only women could make good cheese. But there was also this prejudice that women shouldn't work in factories, so they didn't know what to do. <laughs> so enter Velveeta and right. the processed American cheeses rather right. than the farmstead. Which, which, by the way, were made by men. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about nowadays in the dairy farm. So this is, you write that it is a very challenging business to survive. And um, challenge, it's, uh, today's dairy farms throughout the U.S. are having a hard time with that system. Yeah, I mean, what's happened with this industrialization process is that, you know, all products that have a very narrow profit margin, uh, you need to produce a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And what's happened is that small farms, the family farm, is just going out of business and being replaced by these huge farms with thousands of cows. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, organic milk, for example. Or, organic milk is, I mean, there's a difficult formula. You know, you can mm-hmm. charge more for organic milk, but it is so much more expensive to produce. Uh, and what's happened is that nobody can afford to do it except for large farms. And most organic milk in this country is produced by industrial-scale farms. Right. It's the opposite of what people think when they're buying <laughs> organic milk. Right. And that's a tough business, too. Um, I'm curious what you think of all the, the fracas of um, milk substitutes. So now that we see more and more um, alternative plant proteins, milks, like almond milk and... uh... Well, what's interesting to me, almond milk is particularly interesting to me because almond milk was very common in the Middle Ages in Europe Hmm. um, because the church on holy days outlawed red meat and blood and things, and it was believed that milk was white blood. (laughs) Right, And so you couldn't have milk on holy days, and so... Uh, if you look at medieval recipes that call for milk, they'll say, you know, a cup of milk or almond milk, meaning if it's a holy day, use almond milk. If it's another that day, you can back. use yeah. regular milk. Uh, so uh, almond milk was just very widely used. And then the, the, the all these church laws went away, and almond milk went away. And, ah. and now it's come back, one of those... Come back. Funny turns of history. In a pretty big way, as yep. well as, um, you know, pea milk, pea protein milk, um, oat milk. Right. Well, you know, all, all these things are, are, are ways of trying to get around all of the issues of milk. Right. You know, because it's not really milk. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, and what it really tells me is, is that despite everything, people just want milk one way or another. <laughs> so they're saying, yes. okay, here's a way you can have milk and you don't have to have milk. That know? is true. Now, will it work in my <laughs> cookie recipe or my... <laughs> you know, it, it like struck me when I was researching about all these deaths from milk in the mid-19th century, and I kept thinking, well, why do they keep using milk? Why don't they just stop? <laughs> and why don't we... Um, you write about how we developed evaporated milk to get right. around some of these safety concerns... Why don't we go back to that? As much right, I don't but see you, that you could you could can it and it doesn't go bad. And, right, right. Uh, um, um, that's a way. But you know, and then, you know, then you have that whole history of formula, which formulas go back to ancient times, and it go back to the belief that milk, even mother's milk, was not enough, and you needed to supplement it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but then there was this huge scandal with Nestle's formula because they were selling it in, in, the, in the third world in really poor places like Africa. And there was nothing wrong with it. Right. Um, but you had to mix it with water, and there was a lot wrong with the water. Oh. <laughs> so it was actually encouraging mothers to give bad water to their, to their babies, and a lot of babies were getting sick and dying from the water. Oh, my goodness. Also, it's incredibly expensive. Yes. And what they would do is they would just give them a whole bunch of formula when they had their baby. And then, you know, after by the time the supply is used up, the mother is no longer lactating. Oh, gosh. Uh, so you have no other choice. And right. the stuff is really expensive. And you're hooked on that. Right. Yeah. Well, that's not, yeah. Well, that's a good marketing strategy. However, I'm not sure. Well, it really <laughs> was a marketing <laughs> yes. strategy. You know, yeah. it wasn't by chance this happened. Well, so many controversies today. What do you hope that people get? Um, from this book as a lasting sort of lessons 
Well, a few things. But one thing I really would like people to get from this book is, is how tough it is to be a, a farmer. Mm -hmm. And that dairy farmers are extremely hardworking. I mean, to be honest, I don't know why they do it. You know, you don't get a day off. It is such a hard life. I don't... I, I come from a fishing background and, uh -huh. not, and, not, and not a land background, so uh -huh. I, I don't really I don't really get it, you know. In fishing, I, I get completely, even though it's more dangerous than farming and just as tough. But you know, farming is just it, it's so tough, and these people they, they they just love it and they work so hard at it, and everything they're doing is trying to figure out a way for it to work. And and you know, there are you know a few abusive farmers here and there, right. but Generally, if they if they have practices that are bad for the environment, or practices that are bad for health, or practices that are unkind to animals, uh, it's not because they're mean people. It's because they're just trying to find a way for it to work. And if you have issues with this stuff, learn how to talk to farmers because yeah. they'll be glad to work with you if you have solutions to offer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, um, yeah. Did you ever write that story for Modern Farmer? By the I, way? Did. Yeah. I did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So look at that. Um, but I'm glad you came up with so many other stories to share through that process. And um, I know it just came out this week. Um, and I'm just so thrilled to get to interview you for the first week of this book. Thank you. Really nice talking to you. Yeah. I hope everyone checks out Milk, just out from Bloomsbury. And uh, thank you so much, Mark Kurlansky. And thanks, everyone, at Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Oh, oh, oh.